You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series on Ephesians. Thanks for joining me, Nathan Johnson, in an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let's dive into the lesson for the day. Welcome to Lesson 18 of the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. In our last study, we began talking about this great mystery of the Bible. And if you haven't listened to Lesson 17, stop and go back to that lesson before you dive into this one as it lays an important groundwork to understand this lesson. Now, I mentioned in Lesson 17 that based on the context and the force of Paul's writings, the mystery hidden for ages and generations is, well, Jesus himself. That we as Gentiles get to be fellow heirs with Christ with the Jews. That just as a husband and a wife are one, so too we are one with Christ. Or as Paul says in Colossians 1.27, that the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations is Christ in us. Or as he writes in Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Well, I want to expand this concept in today's lesson and go back into the Old Testament and see how Jesus is revealed on every page of Scripture. Years ago, when I first realized that all of Scripture, not just the New Testament, was about Jesus and that Jesus was the key to understanding the entirety of the Bible, my depth, my understanding, and love for God's Word truly exploded. Jesus is the key that unlocks the richness and understanding of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, Paul makes an interesting statement about the Jews. He says, Seeing then that we have such hope, we speak with great boldness, not as Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Instead, their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Covenant, the veil which was done away with in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil is still in their hearts. Nevertheless, when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Simply, Paul says that the Jews, when reading the Old Testament, they miss the entire point. For a veil hangs upon their eyes and their heart. But that veil is removed in Christ. See, Jesus is the key to understanding the Old Testament. Now, I realize that Jesus wasn't born till the New Testament. Yet, we as Christians believe that Jesus is a part of the triune God. Though he was born in a woman's womb 2,000 years ago, he is from before time and creation. When we read the Bible, we so often think of God as the Father. The Father is the one doing and acting and speaking throughout the Old Testament. But in reality, it was the fullness of the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all there thinking and acting as one. For we only have one God, which this too is a delightful mystery. So as a second member of the Trinity, Jesus was there throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. In fact, John tells us that Jesus, also called the Living Word, was in the beginning. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him, and without him nothing was created that was created. In him was life, and the life was the light 
of mankind. Paul in Colossians 1, 16 and 17 reminds us that for through him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus was there at creation, speaking the universe into existence. He was there in the burning bush talking with Moses. He was there in the fiery furnace with Daniel's three friends. He was there. And though it is a mystery, Jesus can be seen upon every page of the Old Testament. Now, I wish we had more time to walk you through this concept. And perhaps in a future series, I can focus specifically on Christ in the Old Testament. But it is important to note that when you come into the Old Testament, it is critical that you study it first and foremost in its historical, cultural, and literal context. But amazingly, as you get into the passage, you'll often, often discover a picture of Jesus, the cross, and or the gospel hidden in plain view. In talking with the Pharisees, Jesus said in John 5, 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees saying, Guys, do you not recognize that the book that you've been studying and memorizing and learning ever since you were a little kid, hey, you're looking, trying to seek eternal life, but it all points to me. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he's talking to the two men. And it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And it's talking specifically about the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus went into the Old Testament and for this five to seven mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, Jesus was expounding the Old Testament saying, see that? That's the Messiah. See that? That's all about the Messiah. See that? That's all about me. Wouldn't that have been a phenomenal walk to have been on for this five to seven mile journey of just Jesus himself revealing how he is, he, how he is seen throughout the, the entirety of the Old Testament. In talking with the Ethiopian eunuch, it says in Acts chapter 8 verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, speaking of Isaiah 53, Philip preached Jesus to him. Isn't that a crazy thought? Uh, here's Philip, he sees this Ethiopian eunuch. He comes up and says, hey, what are you reading? And the passage just happened to be Isaiah 53. And he says, well, I can't understand it. And Philip says, oh, let me explain that to you. Do you know what Isaiah 53 is all about? Jesus. See, the entirety of the Old Testament points toward Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. As believers, we are not just simply New Testament believers. We are entire Bible believers. The Old Testament prepares us to understand Jesus Christ and all that he did and accomplished. The Old Testament only makes sense when you realize that its completion is in Christ Jesus. Now, what I want to do is I want to quickly give you three of my favorite pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, these are just three examples, but truth be told, Jesus truly is upon every page of Scripture. Now, for note, it doesn't mean that every single thing, every single word shows Jesus. For example, every time you see the word tree, it doesn't mean, oh, that's the cross. Or every time you see the word red, oh, it must be the blood. There's a lot of things that just, it's, it's the overarching picture or the undercurrent of a passage. So just keep that in mind. Again, we have to study in its cultural, historical, literal lens 
as we come to the Old Testament. But I want to give you three of my all-time favorite pictures. The first one comes from Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27, and it's this idea of the bitter waters. See, the Israelites have been in Egypt for 400 years. They've been slaves and under the tyranny of their Egyptian masters. Well, God does this phenomenal movement and frees them from Egypt. And here they are, they go through the Red Sea and they come into this desert land. Now, in Exodus 15, verses 23 to 26, it says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah, which means bitter. So the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And so Moses cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he had thrown into the waters, the waters were made sweet. For I am the Lord who heals you. I am Jehovah Rapha. Beautiful scene. Uh, here is two to three million Israelites and all their flocks and all their herds. And they, they're in the middle of the wilderness for three days. And they come, oh, they see some water. And they're obviously excited because they're in desperate need of water. And they come to this pool and they, they go, oh, great, some water. And, and one person, no doubt, picks up the water and puts it to their mouth and ah, it's bitter. It's nasty. It's just, it's undrinkable. It's, it's just, it's not how it's supposed to be. And of course, everyone's concerned and just in desperation. And they cry to Moses saying, hey, we're, we're on the verge of just dying of dehydration here, Moses. We're, we're, we're longing for, for a drink. Please just, hey, could, could you give us, hey, cry out to the Lord, do something. I don't know about you, but what a crazy thought. They, they just left Egypt. They, they, God just did a phenomenal movement as he literally led them through the Red Sea. And here they are complaining, thinking that they're going to die. Now, we look back at that and say, that seems so strange. You would think if you have seen God's faithfulness all the way through this whole story, you would go, no problem, God has this figured out. But we tend to behave just like they do. Don't we? That we see God's faithfulness and we see his movement and yet the next crisis comes from like, oh, I don't know if I can trust God. How crazy is that? So here's this bitter waters. Here's this polluted waters. Here's this just nasty, undrinkable waters. And Moses cries unto the Lord and says, what do you want me to do? And God shows Moses a tree. Now it's true. Not every tree in scripture points to the cross. I get that. But think about this in context. Now, did this story actually happen? Well, yes. This is a literal story of Moses and the Israelites coming to the bitter waters called Mara, and Moses taking a tree and throwing the tree into the middle of the bitter waters and the bitter waters becoming sweet. But do you recognize that this itself is a picture of the phenomenal work upon the cross and the gospel itself? See, I don't know about you, but our lives are twisted. They're polluted. They're bitter. They're, they're not as they're supposed to be. Why? Because we are full of sin. So what does God do? Well, he takes a tree called a cross and he literally throws it, plants it smack dab in the middle of the bitter waters. And what do the bitter waters become? Not just drinkable, the bitter waters become sweet. Have you ever had water that is so clean and so pure? It actually has a sweet taste. I'm a big fanatic about water. I, I don't like the city water where I live. And so I'm very finicky, which is probably not a good thing. <laughs> I understand that. And it's not good missionary training. I understand that too. 
but I love good purified water. In fact, I drink a lot more water if it's clean and pure and actually tastes well. So I go and I typically buy water. Well, about a year ago, I had some friends who came and installed a reverse osmosis system in my house. And wow, the water is even better than what I had before, which was really good. It's amazing. Not only do I drink far more water because of this, but it's interesting if I just stop and ponder the water I'm drinking, the water actually is, well, it's actually sweet to a degree. It's not that there's sugar in it. It's just, it is so clean and so pure. Well, it has a sweetness to it. Isn't it an amazing thought that in a, in a literal historical sense, here are the Israelites, they come to the bitter waters, they can't drink it, they cry out to the Lord, and what does the Lord do? Plants a tree in the middle of that and causes not just drinkable water, but sweet water to take place. And the same thing is true in our lives. See, we have been twisted. We have been polluted. We have bitterness in our life called sin. So God takes the cross, plants it smack dab, and doesn't just make our lives drinkable. He makes it sweet. What an amazing reality of what Jesus does in our life. Do you not see how this passage then lifts up Jesus and says, wow, can't you see him? Oh, I love that picture in the Old Testament. Another one of my favorite stories comes from the book of Joshua. In, in Joshua chapter 3, the, the Israelites are about to cross over the Jordan River. So here they are. They rejected God's promise and they've been wandering the wilderness for 40 years. At this point, Moses has, has died and Joshua is about to lead the, the, the Israelites into the promised land. And so they get to the bank of the Jordan and now they have a problem. See, they need to cross over the Jordan, but, but the rivers are really high. So let me read this passage in Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3 verses 14 through 17 says this. When the people set out from their tents to cross over the Jordan, the priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. When the carriers of the Ark came to the Jordan, the feet of the priests carrying the Ark dipped into the edge of the water. Now the Jordan overflows its banks all the days of the harvest. Then the water that flows down from upstream stood still and rose up in a heap very far away at a city called Adam. Then the water that flows down toward the Dead Sea stopped and was cut off. The people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until the entire people completed crossing over the Jordan. Can you imagine the scene? Uh, here they are. The, the banks are overflowed because it's the time of harvest. And so there's, there's more water in the Jordan than normal. And uh, as, they're, as they're looking, they're going, wow, how are we going to get across? So Joshua says, hey, the priest, why don't you take the ark and like, go into the river? And as they step into the river, the water like, psh, parts. Now, we don't have time to fully get into this, but the ark itself, the ark of the covenant, is a phenomenal picture of Jesus Christ. It, I mean, it really is stunning. That it is, it is symbolic, even in the Old Testament, of the presence of God. And its fuller expression or completion is that it is a representation of the presence of Jesus. It is the life of Christ. Think about this. As the life of Christ enters into the river, the river that was flowing from a place called Adam all the way to the Dead Sea stopped. Now, just think about this in terms of the gospel. You realize that we are in Adam we are literally in sin. That's how Paul articulates it throughout a lot of his epistles. So that which started with Adam, sin, and literally flows unto death. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus steps into the middle of that which started at Adam and flows down to death, 
it ceased. What an incredible picture of the gospel. Because you realize that here I am in Adam, and I'm literally full of sin. But when Christ is smack dab in the middle of my life, when he is the preeminent, when he's the centrality, when, when I put my faith in him and his work upon the cross, you realize that that which flows from Adam unto death stops. And now I can actually have life. Isn't that incredible? Oh, I love that picture. Let me give you one more really quick. As they finished crossing over the Jordan River, uh, right before this scene, Joshua had sent in two spies uh, unto Jericho. Jericho is just right across from this place in the Jordan River. And the two spies come into the city and they're, they're going to spy it out, kind of see, you know, can we take it or not? And lo and behold, they end up at a prostitute's house. And the prostitute kind of hides them and says, hey, uh, everyone in the city is deeply concerned. And, and we're all, we're, hey, we're not certain of what's going to take place. But this we know. We've heard the stories of your God. And we know we are going to be destroyed. And so Rahab, the prostitute, looks at the two Israelite men and says, could you, could you give me a promise? Hey, I, I, whatever it is that you have, I desperately need that. Your God, I, I want him to be my God. That kind of an idea. And hey, I'm, gonna, I'm, willing to hide, I'm willing to hide you from my people. And hey, I'm willing to let you down out of the window. And hey, I'm going to help you escape. But would you remember me when you guys come and, and take the city? And the men said, sure. And it's interesting in Joshua chapter 2, verse 12, it says this. So now, since I have acted faithfully toward you, please swear to me by the Lord that you will also act faithfully toward my father's house. Please give me a firm pledge. Now, a few verses later in verses 17 and 18, it reads, These men said to Rahab, We will be free from this oath that you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this red cord to the window through which you let us down. So here the Israelites, they cross over the Jordan River as we just read in the previous story. And they're about to march into Jericho. Now, we don't have time to get into the Jericho story, but incredible picture of God's grace and just his movement and favor with the Israelites. But as they cross over and they surround and they walk around it for seven days and the walls fall down and they, they take the city, there's only one family that was saved. And it was Rahab, the prostitute, and all the people who were in her house. Now, how was she saved? Well, she was saved by this scarlet cord or this scarlet thread that she was hanging in the window. Now, think of it this way. Her sign of salvation, that the symbol that she was really going to be freed and saved from death was this scarlet cloth. Now, scarlet in antiquity is actually really beautiful to study out. See, the way that scarlet cloth was made was through this little animal called the scarlet silk worm. Now, the scarlet silkworm, when it was about to give birth, the, the female scarlet silkworm would climb up a tree and she would embed herself in the tree. In fact, she would be permanently attached to the tree. She was going to die upon a tree. And it's interesting, as her children were growing, uh, right as they were about to be birthed, she would literally give her life for her young and her blood would literally spill out and literally incubate the little the new little baby scarlet silkworms. And it was this splotch of redness on a tree that these antiquity people would go and they would extract the silk, which had been stained red by the blood of a scarlet silkworm. Now, <laughs> isn't this a beautiful picture? If you just think about that alone, it is a phenomenal picture of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, in Psalm 22, Jesus makes the declaration that I am a worm and no man. And the worm he's talking about, it's not just any kind of a worm. It actually is, I am a scarlet silkworm and no man. That his life can be seen even in a little caterpillar kind of a thing. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus, think about this. Just as the scarlet silkworm embeds herself on a tree, just as she gives her own life for her future generation, just as there's this red splotch upon the tree showing the symbol of life for the young, that all was taken and put into this red cloth. So here is Rahab the prostitute, and she has a red cloth that's only been stained red by the blood of the scarlet silkworm, most likely. And she's hanging that as a symbol of her salvation in her window. So what is the sign of our salvation? Well, it is the blood of Jesus Christ. So just as the Israelites in Egypt had a sign of salvation, which was the blood of the lamb upon the doorpost, and just as Rahab had a sign of salvation, which was this scarlet cloth hanging in her window, so too you and I have a sign of salvation, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. And those are just three of the countless examples all throughout the Old Testament. If you study Jewish culture, you'll find Jesus in the holidays and the feast, the wedding celebration customs. Hey, he can be seen in the tabernacle and the temple and, and every item contained therein. He is the offspring of the woman in Genesis 3 who will crush the head of the serpent. He is seen in Noah's ark as the sole means of salvation amidst the coming judgment. He is in the life of Joseph, the beloved son who, whose suffering put him in a place where he became savior to all the world who would come to him for bread and for life. He is the loving kinsman redeemer seen in the story of Boaz and Ruth, who redeems and woos a bride who was a Gentile foreigner. He isn't just seen in the messianic prophecies, talking about the coming Messiah. Jesus is also seen through the people, the patterns, the stories, the symbols, the festivals, and yes, even the geography of the land. Personally, the more I've studied the Old Testament, the more awestruck I've become at how God has woven the entire Bible to showcase a single mystery, Jesus Christ. He is the central focus. He is the preeminent one. He is the North Star. Or as Paul declares in Romans, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Again, let me ask you, is Jesus the great mystery of your life? A mystery not purposely hidden, but is clearly seen once revealed. Do, do people see Jesus through every aspect of your life? How you act, how you talk, how you respond during difficulty and frustrating circumstances. What would happen if Jesus became the big deal of our lives? What, what would happen if the mystery hidden for ages and generations was demonstrated in our world today because he was clearly seen in and through our lives? Would you embrace him afresh? Or would you give him your time, your energy, and your focus to go after the most important thing in all the universe and all of history? And may I encourage you, the next time you read or study the Old Testament, yes, make sure you study it first and foremost in its proper context. But as you read and study, allow the Spirit of God to reveal Jesus Christ to you. He is there, hidden in plain sight on every page of scripture. Oh, may we be drawn into greater depths, insight and revelation of this tremendous mystery, which is Jesus himself and all that he longs to do and accomplish in and through our lives. 
Well, in our next lesson, I want to return to our passage in Ephesians 1.9 and continue our discussion on what it means to actually know this mystery. And I would encourage you, if you have time, to dive into Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, and continue to investigate this incredible mystery. Well, thanks for joining me for today's study. If you would like to see an outline of the study or read a commentary version of this passage, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash 18 for lesson number 18. And you can also check out all the previous studies in Ephesians by visiting deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. And until next time, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ, on whom all scripture points to. See you then. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus Christ, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you would like to view the video version of this study, you can do so at deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians.